Well, can you guess what part of the Lord's Prayer we're talking about today? We started on Ash Wednesday, a series based on the Lord's Prayer for the season of Lent. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. In the Ash Wednesday message, I began giving kind of a a historical understanding of how we come about this season and the roots, the Christian roots of the season of Lent. And if you didn't get to hear that and you're kind of curious, if the whole idea of Lent is a new thing to you, you can go on the website and go back to the Ash Wednesday message and listen to that beginning part. Today, I had planned to share in the sermon history about the Lord's Prayer. But I thought to save a little time in that, I would write it out. In fact, I put it in my Friday uh, devotion this week to just give some understanding about the history of the Lord's Prayer, how it has been used, how it came about, the places we find it in Scripture, and the divisions of it in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the version that we're focusing on. So if you did not get that email, we have some copies of this available just outside the sanctuary at the uh, connection countertop. You can pick up a copy as you go today. Well, I want to begin by telling you a prayer experience I had some years ago when we lived in a parsonage right beside the church. I had a routine Saturday night of going down to the church to print my sermon, and then I would go up to the sanctuary and in the darkness kneel at the altar to pray for the service for the next day. Those were really special times to me, times in prayer. No one around, the quietness, the darkness of the sanctuary. So one Saturday night, I'm doing my routine. I walk into the sanctuary, the light uh, from street lights outside coming through the windows. I didn't turn any lights on. I go down to the altar. I'm kneeling in prayer. And then I hear a voice that says, what are you doing? It was not the voice of God. (laughs) It was a woman sitting on the organist bench in the dark. I levitated in my prayer that day, literally came off the rail about that high. I said, who's there? The voice said, me. (laughs) I found out it was a woman who had been hitchhiking on the interstate. The sheriff's deputies picked her up. She was obviously in need of some assistance. So what did the deputies do? They dropped her off at the nearest church. She found an unlocked door and made her way up into the sanctuary and was sitting there on the organist bench. I called a couple in the church. They came over, picked her up, got her into a hotel for the night. The next day, they helped her find the assistance that she needed. I think about that voice. I think about that woman often when I'm praying. And when my prayers tend to become a jumble of words, what are you doing? What are you saying? What do you mean by those words? I wonder if that'll be helpful for us as we go through this series on the Lord's Prayer. To think about being interrupted What are you doing? What are you saying? What do you mean when you pray these words? Because while the Lord's Prayer, for many of us, might just be this ritual we say at the end of the pastoral prayer every week, it no doubt was meant to mean a lot more by Jesus. And it does to many people. Two weeks ago, we did a service on anxiety. 
After the sermon, we celebrated Holy Communion. I was down here serving communion. A member of the church came by me and said, I struggle with anxiety, and when I do, I pray the Lord's Prayer. And he walked on. Uh, recently, Marianne Moman said she had conducted a funeral for an elderly woman in the church whose husband has a memory issue in which it's becoming very faint. He didn't seem to follow too well what was going on, a little agitated. But she said, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer in the service, finally there was recognition. His lips began to move. He became calm. A woman sat in my office Ash Wednesday afternoon this week and said, I want you to know the Lord's Prayer saved my life. In just my 50s, I had been put into a nursing home, and I thought, I'm going to die here if I don't get up and do something. And what has become key to my healing is my devotion, sometimes an hour every morning. The anchor is the Lord's Prayer. So certainly the Lord's Prayer is meant by Jesus to be something of meaning and power. But what is it? What did Jesus mean for us to understand in these words that he taught? We began Wednesday looking at the opening address of the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. Today we look at the next line that probably for many people is the most confusing when we say them. That we might not even pause to think, what does that mean? Hallowed be thy name. Some scholars say the most accurate translation would be to say it this way. God make your name holy. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God's name to be made holy? And just how does God make God's own name holy? Well, let's think about that this morning. Obviously, there are two key words we're looking at, hallowed and name. Let's look at the second one first, name. In Bible times, a name was much more than a label. A name communicated the essence of a person, the the character of a person. Think of a, a courier in the days of old England coming into a village and unrolling a scroll and beginning by saying, in the name of the king. What did that mean? Everything that that person is about to read, the king might as well be standing there himself saying it. In the name of the king, his presence, his power is there. Here in Indiana, when you go into the BMV office, and I'm sure it's one of your favorite places to go, you always see two pictures on the wall, don't you? The President of the United States and the Governor. What does that mean? That the authority of those offices is made real in that room. William Barclay, in his commentary, says that the name stood for the whole character of a person. So what does the name of God mean? Well, to appreciate that, we've got to take a little trip back to the Old Testament. And I know you love it when we go back to the Old Testament. You're an Old Testament loving people. So we go to Mount Sinai where Moses has seen a bush burning, but it's not burning up. And he goes to investigate. And when he does, he hears the voice of God. The first thing God says is take off your shoes. You're on holy ground, holy ground. 
And then God gives Moses an assignment. Go back to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. Now imagine how excited Moses was to get that job. He had escaped from Pharaoh. He ran for his life from Pharaoh. Now God is saying, go back to him. So what's one of the first things Moses says to God? Tell me your name. In other words, I'm not going to go back to Pharaoh and stand there on my own authority. I better have a scroll. I better have something to unroll and say, in the name of the king of the universe. So tell me your name. God says, tell them my name is Yahweh, Hebrew, for I am who I am. Every time I think of Yahweh, I think of Popeye. I am what I am. That's all I am. Everett Fox, in his commentary on Exodus, says there's another, there's another way to interpret the, the, the name Yahweh. It's this way. I will be there as I will be there. That's, that's a little different twist, isn't it? That, that idea of God says something about the character of God. I will be there. You can count on it. I am a dependable God. Now, the degree to which we trust that depends on what we believe about the way God relates to the world. And there are two ways to think about that. One way is to believe that we are the center of things and God revolves around us. And to believe that God will be there means God will be there to prevent hardship from happening in my life. God will be there to prevent tragedy from occurring. God will be there as God will be there so that I can remain at the center and have the life I want. The other way is to put God at the center and to understand that our lives revolve around God. Now, if I ask you, which is the better way to believe, do you think? We're all sitting in church. We're probably going to say, well, of course, the better way is to put God at the center. The trouble is we don't live here. We live out there. And out there, it's another story. Because the temptation always is to put ourselves at the center. This past week was the anniversary of the Inquisition of Galileo. Galileo was put on trial by church officials because he believed like Copernicus before him that the sun is the center and the earth revolves around the sun. And the church leader said, that's ridiculous. Just look up. The sun rises. The sun sets. It goes through the course of the skies. The earth is the center. We are the center of things. Is it any wonder on some of these yard signs, one of the lines says, I believe in science instead of saying I believe in church. Even church people can get it wrong. Even church people struggle not to be the center. 
And when we put ourselves at the center and we need a God who keeps the hardship away from us, who when hardship comes, gets it straightened out as quick as possible so we can get back on track and keep life the way we want it. Ah. Faith tends to be a frustrated proposition. You remember the movie Bruce Almighty? Bruce was the center of his universe. Jim Carrey played Bruce in the movie. He needed a God who would keep all of his problems away so he could get on with things the way he wanted to. And one day God shows up and God says, you think you can do a better job running the world than I can? Here, I give you my power. I'm taking a vacation. Never had one in the history of the universe. Good luck, Bruce. Now, at first, that's a fun time for Bruce. You remember the scene, though, one night when Bruce can't handle the prayers coming in? It's just too much. And he comes up with a solution. Just give everyone a yes. Whatever they're praying, you get a yes, and you get a yes, and you. It was like the Oprah Winfrey show. Everyone gets a yes. And what was the result? Total chaos. Even Bruce made the moon bigger so that he can impress his girlfriend and then found out the next day it caused a tsunami in Japan. A world in which everybody gets what they want is a chaotic world. God made the world with certain natural laws and principles. And that's what makes the world good. God doesn't violate those laws. But even that doesn't mean there's not the possibility for pain. But it's in the painful times that we discover the true character of God. We discover what it means to believe in a God who says, I will be there as I will be there. And a God who comes to heal and to help and restore. And a God who can take painful realities and work through them and fashion out of them something that is good. That's, that's the power of God. That's the character of God. So when we say the name of God, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about everything that is God. We're talking about God's character. But the prayer Jesus taught us to pray is not, I believe in the name of God. It's, hallowed be your name, O God. Make your name hallowed. What does that mean? Well, the word hallowed means Holy. We don't say hallowed a whole lot. We think of Halloween, and it actually means the same thing. Halloween comes from All Hallows Eve, the day before All Saints Day, when we honor holy people. Well, holy in the Bible simply means set apart, to be distinct, different. When the Bible says keep the Sabbath holy, it means keep the Sabbath different from the other days of the week. Keep the Sabbath as a day devoted to me, says God. Make it distinct. Make it set apart. Moses was told to take the Levites 
and set them apart wholly to God. It means they were to be different from all of the other tribes. They were to carry out special assigned duties. They were to be different. When we say, hallowed be thy name, what we're saying is, God, keep your character distinct. Keep your character set apart. How does God do that? Theologian Robert Gulick in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer says the holiness of God's name is bound up with the character and conduct, are you ready for this, of God's people. God keeps God's character distinct in the character and the conduct and the behavior of God's people. When you think of it that way, this part of the Lord's Prayer is sort of a a positive version of the third commandment in the Old Testament. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. In other words, do not impugn the character of God. Normally when we think don't take the Lord's name in vain, we say, well, don't use God's name as a curse. I believe it means that. I do believe it means that. But I believe it means something something deeper than that because there are a lot of ways we can impugn the character of God, especially among godly people. This past week, I don't know if you saw it in a, news, in a news story, but a 63-year-old United Methodist pastor in Connecticut was arrested for making methamphetamine in the parsonage of the church. Perhaps there's nothing sadder than church officials who impugn the character of God with the hurtful and harmful things they do to other people, even children. But there are a lot of ways to impugn the character of God. Again, William Barclay in his commentary says that, again, he wrote this 60 years ago. Some Christians who are the staunchest in their beliefs can misrepresent the character of God, such as when, quote, God is presented as a God of battles and a kind of nationalistic ally. When people have drawn a picture of God to suit their own theories of racial superiority, when people use their ideas about God to erect their own barriers of social progress and make religion an argument for maintaining the status quo. Have you ever known any Christians who impugn the character of God because they believe they're so right? That they use it as a reason to hurt and to do harm. Oh, that we would be filled with the genuine holiness of God. The character of God that is compassion and mercy and love and understanding. I wonder if that's why so many people want nothing to do with holiness. (laughs) They don't want to be one of those people. They don't want to be hypocritical. 
They don't want to be an individual who says one thing and does another. Why do, why do we need sacred places? Why does the altar need to be different or set apart? Why should we dress up when we come to the church? Let's be casual. Folks, believe me, I've made that argument. And so many churches saying to reach people, we need to make church more approachable and common and ordinary. And maybe it's because I'm getting older. I guess I'm becoming an old fuddy-duddy. But I think I got it wrong. I think I was wrong. Because when there is little space in our life for the sacred, we lose something inside of us. When there's nothing that we call holy, when there's nothing sacred anymore, something happens in us that lessens. I wonder if this is what the Apostle Peter meant when he wrote in his first letter, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. That's one of the key commandments of God in the holiness code of the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. It doesn't mean be self-righteous. It means let my character be set apart in you. Let my values be realized in who you are. It's not about sacred spaces. It's about transformed character. If... We read the translation of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed Be Thy Name, in the RSV. That is Rob's standard version of the Bible. It would go like this. God, let your character stand out until it stands out in me. Let it stand out until it stands out in me. I know I shared in the Ash Wednesday message a Carver McGriff story, but I wanted to share another one to close out the message today. Carver tells the story about when he was a teenager and he had a job at the Ellis Ayers department store. And one morning, I think it must have been a Saturday when he was working and he needed to be there when the store opened he had breakfast early and his father was sitting at the breakfast table and his father was trying to point something out in Carver. It was a little correction, but Carver wasn't taking it well. Carver says, I got pretty haughty and uppity and I said some ugly things to my dad and I stormed off in a huff. I got down to the store, started getting things ready for opening and then I heard the bell over the front door ring signaling the first customer of the day had arrived. And I looked up and it was my dad. And he walked over to me and he said, Carver, I'm so sorry. That stuck with Carver. Because he said, my dad had nothing to apologize for. I was the one who was rude. I was the one who was ugly. And here he is down here saying to me, I'm sorry. 
Could that be a very earthly way of understanding, hallowed be thy name, God, stay true to your character no matter what until it has an impact on my own and I begin to look like that character that I become a person of mercy and compassion and love that I care about the suffering and the hurting of other people and I allow your love to shine through me. Well, as I want us to do throughout this series, I invite us to close the message by saying together, maybe in a little slower manner than usual, the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.